0: Israel has done everything in its power for decades to fragment and physically separate Palestinians from one another. So if you're a Palestinian living in 48, you can't go live in the West Bank. If you're in the West Bank, you can't go live in 48. If you're in Gaza, you can't go to Jerusalem. Like Gaza to Jerusalem is one hour in a car, but that trip is impossible to make. You understand? It's an impossible trip to make. You can't do it. It doesn't exist. And again, who are the people that live in Gaza? The majority of them are refugees. 80% of the people who live in Gaza today are refugees from the creation of the state of Israel. They were expelled from their cities to the north, to the east, that the Zionists claimed for themselves and turned into Israel. That's what Israel does. It decides everything about our lives. We don't get to decide anything. And that's not a democracy, no matter how many times you say it is.
1: The unconditional love that the U.S. has for Israel is unmatched. But will we ever witness a breakup when it comes to this toxic relationship? You're listening to Unsween and Unfilter the Podcast, episode 18 of season three. Recently, the Palestinian Prisoners Affairs Commission has reported that since 1967, there have been approximately 1 million arrests of Palestinians by the IOF. More than 50,000 of these arrests are children. I would like to also add that a generous amount of these Palestinian prisoners died as a result of torture, medical negligence, and there are those who have been murdered by the IOF after they have been released from prison. In today's episode, I sit down with Laura, who is a Palestinian-American international lawyer and the co-host of The Palestine Pod, which is a weekly podcast that breaks down the latest Palestine-related news with the aim of supporting Palestinian liberation, justice, and equality on the ground and in exile. In this discussion, Laura mentions how her friend Iyad Bernat was unable to record a podcast episode with her because the IOF raided his home and kidnapped his two sons. And when I say raided, I mean that the IOF destroyed everything in sight. While Laura and I were recording this episode, Iyad was unaware of the location of his children. But as of today, there has been an update and unfortunately, the discovery of his son's whereabouts should have brought him relief but instead it brought on more heartache. This is because both of his sons are being held in one of the worst military prisons in the world and it's located in Jerusalem. This prison is infamous for its torture methods and its purpose is to extract false confessions and place ludicrous charges against Palestinians. I hope that you can please keep the Bernat family in your prayers and most importantly, try your best to amplify their stories and their voices. Just recently, I had come across this following statement. It is a miraculous feat of propaganda, that an occupying army convinced so many that it's the victim of the people it's occupying. Not only are the IOF terrorizing Palestinian families, but they are also brutally attacking our journalists in order to further suppress the truth while the world continues to turn a blind eye. And in this discussion, Lata also covers the myth of coexistence, Israel's blatant intentions to separate Palestinians from one another, the importance of using the correct terminology when it comes to what is unfolding in Palestine, and Israel's racist and discriminatory laws. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for joining me today, Laura. You know, I've been following your work and your Palestine Pod podcast, which I would hope for you to talk a little bit more about it because it is something that I have been using as a resource in regards to, you know, what's happening in Palestine right now. Today, I really want us to dive a little bit deeper into, you know, the myth of coexistence and the U.S.'s unconditional love for Israel. This is something that, you know, we've been knowing all our lives growing up with it. But before we dive into all of that, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Thank you so much for the invitation to be
0: here and for having me. So I am Palestinian. All four of my grandparents were born in Gaza. My great-grandmother comes from Jaffa. Uh, I was born in Kuwait, however, a stateless refugee like most Palestinians and did not get a passport or a nationality of any kind before I was around 16 or 17 years old. I'm also an international lawyer and an activist. When it comes to my legal practice, I split my time between working on global disputes uh, which is the more commercial aspect of my work, and also doing human rights work, primarily focused on statelessness and refugee rights. So in doing that, I represent asylum seekers and their uh, applications to get refugee status before the French jurisdictions. And my clients include Palestinians who were made stateless refugees in 1948, when they were expelled from their houses by the Zionist militias and who until today, 73 years later, are still looking for a country to live in after spending decades in refugee camps because Israel will not let them return to Palestine. I've also represented Syrian asylum seekers and asylum seekers from West Africa and worked on a whole host of other issues like prison reform and whistleblower rights. I have also, uh, as you mentioned, my own uh, weekly English language podcast called The Palestine Pod, where we basically get together uh, to go over some of the latest Palestine-related headlines of the week. We do interviews, We provide commentary uh, with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for liberation. We've hosted scholars, journalists, activists, and comedians who are uncompromising in their commitment to this issue. And we try to be really content heavy. We provide on our website full bibliography for all of the sources that we relied upon in the preparation of that specific episode. But at the same time, we try to speak to our audience as if we're all just friends hanging out in the same room. And the ambiance is very casual. And we try to make, you know, we, we make jokes, we laugh. I think the seriousness of the topic does not preclude the possibility of laughing at what is oftentimes the absurdity of the matter. And we try to do that, especially because, I mean, for me as a Palestinian, With all the ongoing trauma that we experience, that aspect can personally be very healing as well.
1: Yeah, honestly, I've truly enjoyed listening to your podcast, and it's just interesting. I mean, you're really speaking from your own personal perspective and your own personal experience. It is absurd. It is absurd the things that are happening in Palestine, and you're looking at the world, and you're like, "Why isn't the world like seeing what we're seeing? Or are they choosing to be blind?" I really want to kind of move on to Dan abutu's article recently, and it was titled, "You know, the Myth of Coexistence in Israel," and within this article, she mentions how like Haifa and Lid have been presented to the world that coexistence is possible in Israel. But recently we've seen mobs of Israelis attack the Palestinians living within these cities. We've seen mass arrest. We've seen them chant death to Arabs and attacking anyone who is not Jewish. And the matter of the fact is that these Palestinians are still treated as second class citizens. Can you just talk a bit about who these Palestinian citizens are and, you know, the way that they're being discriminated against, even though Israel claims that there's a such thing as equal rights for all living within
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really important question because oftentimes when we speak about apartheid and we speak about the military occupation, the occupied West Bank or Gaza or occupied East Jerusalem, we're sort of isolating the Palestinian experience to those physical spaces which are fragmented from other places where Palestinians are, like within the 48 Territories. So for any of your listeners who don't know, when we speak about 48 as Palestinians, what we're talking about is a piece of land that's essentially in the middle now that is also known as Israel. But for us, it's the piece of land that Palestinians were expelled from in 1948, when the majority of the Palestinian population was expelled and dispossessed of their land and of their homes in what we refer to as the Nakba, the catastrophe. At the same time, Israel refers to this series of events as the founding of its country, Independence Day. So what is our Nakba is Israeli Independence Day. And it is you know, really important for listeners to understand that Israel could never have been born on land where the majority of the inhabitants of the land were Muslim and Christian. In order to realize this national project, this settler colony, right, On a piece of land that was already inhabited by a civilization that had been there for thousands of years, the Zionists needed to expel the native population. And that's exactly what they did starting in 1947. But of course, the Nakba is ongoing and it continues until today. But in 1948, you really have this mass expulsion that takes place when over 750,000, but some of the figures go up to as much as 1 million Palestinians. Were expelled from their cities and villages. The Zionists destroyed over 500 cities in Palestine, completely raised them to the ground, and today these cities are now covered either with trees that were planted by the Jewish National Fund or entirely new cities which have erased the uh, Palestinian presence on the land. This is the, the the origin of the state of Israel, right? The origin of the state of Israel is that the state was born out of a mass ethnic cleansing operation of the native Palestinians. Now, who are the Palestinian citizens of Israel today? They are the descendants of those who were not expelled in 1948. They are the few that managed to stay in their homes and in their cities and who remained on the land through up until today, essentially. And today they make up about 20% of the quote-unquote Israeli population. Your listeners may have heard them referenced before uh, by Israel as Arab Israelis. Now, Israel does this in order to erase their Palestinian identity, because what Israel wants you to believe is that the Palestinians are just in the West Bank and Gaza. You know, they're not in Israel. But in fact, all of this land before was Palestine. So what we know today as the West Bank, Gaza and Israel was before 1948, all Palestine and Palestinians lived in Palestine. And so uh, Israel's attempts to erase Palestinianness within its "quote-unquote" borders, which in any event it has never defined because it's continuing to expand its state at, uh, at all hours. You know, even today, what we're seeing with Sheikh Jarrah is uh, just the latest attempt by Israel to continue to ethnically cleanse Palestinians from the land of Palestine. The idea is is that yes, there are Palestinians in "quote-unquote" Israel today, and I think it is important for us to talk about the conditions in which they live and the treatment to which they are subject, because oftentimes we don't talk about it because in terms of the hierarchy of rights that exists in Israel, Certainly, Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, in in occupied East Jerusalem, and certainly in Gaza uh, have it much worse. But that doesn't mean that the Palestinians in Israel proper are living in some sort of, you know, la-la land dream world. They are also living under an apartheid system, and we can get into what that means uh, in further detail as the interview goes on.
1: Yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because for the longest, I think you are right. We heavily focused on Palestinians living in West Bank and Gaza and whatnot, and we forget about the Palestinians living in quote unquote Israel. But recently, Miriam Berguthi and and I mentioned this in a in a previous episode. How you know she corrected the CNN anchor, news anchor. The CNN anchor basically said Israeli Arab, and she's like, no, look, honor their identity. It's they're Palestinian. Before this episode, I've released an episode about you know just the U.S. media or just media in general and how they cover Palestine and. One of the things is they all have guides, and one of their guides says, Do not mention Palestine, do not say Palestine, you have to say Israel. And that is the reason why they also, in a way, erase our identity and call us Israeli Arab for those who live in 48. But you know, I really want to talk about these laws and policies to a certain extent because we do not live there, but I'm pretty sure you are well aware of some of them. But one of them is like by design, like these laws and policies were made to discriminate against the Palestinians living within 48. For example, I read that there is one law that if you live in Israel and you're Jewish Israeli, you can deny a Palestinian from living next to you. That is how absurd these laws are. And that's how discriminatory they are. And then in regards to the mass arrest of Palestinians, the reason why I think for that, or I think everybody knows why, is because Israel was so livid that these are the same Palestinians that have been living amongst you for decades now. And they still sided with their other Palestinian brothers and sisters from West Bank to Gaza to Jerusalem and whatnot. And they weren't siding with the Israelis that were technically their neighbors. And I think Israel is so livid about that, that no matter how much you try to take away our identity, we will still always call ourselves Palestinians and we'll always still stand together no matter what part of Palestine that we live in. But if we can talk a little bit further about these laws and policies and why they're treated as second-class citizens, but Israel is able to tell the world that no, they have equal rights. How is that even possible?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think you've put your finger on a lot of really important points and one of them being The fact that Israel consistently acts in violation of international law to which it is obliged to conform to, but it often acts with total impunity and commits human rights violations, war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, for which there is absolutely no accountability. This, of course, has a great deal to do with the fact that the United States is Israel's primary financier uh, and protector on the international stage. Uh, So anything from making sure that UN Security Council resolutions are, you know, essentially vetoed anytime they try to achieve some sort of accountability for Israeli violations of human rights or continuing to give Israel the blank check, the $3.8 billion that we give Israel every single year with absolutely no conditions whatsoever. It creates an environment where Israel can essentially get away with whatever it, it wants to. And uh, this, of course, is always at the expense of Palestinian human rights, Palestinian self-determination, our right to live on our land. Right. And these are not some sort of imagined rights. You know, when I speak about Palestinian rights, I always tell people we have rights that are being violated by the second and every second that they are not enforced. Take, for example, the right of return of Palestinian refugees. This is a right which exists under international law generally for all refugees, but also specifically with regard to the Palestinians. And Israel has done everything in its power to make it impossible for Palestinians to return to the homes that they were expelled from in 1948 and since 1948. And I'll give you just a quick example. After the Nakba. Israel passed the absentee property law, which basically allowed it to steal millions of dunams of Palestinian land without any compensation to those Palestinians who were expelled or fled from their homes in 1948 and were prevented from returning by Israel. So take a look at this logic. First, Israel expels us. Then they prevent us from returning in violation of international law. Then Israel passes a domestic law, which says that as for any land where there are no owners well that land can now be seized by the state but again this is the very same state which made it impossible for the owners of the land to return in the first place and so israel has has, has often used the legal system as a tool to further its colonial ambitions right so we have to understand that just because something is legal doesn't make it moral and certainly doesn't make it right or doesn't even mean that it's that the policy is in accordance with international obligations, and this is certainly um, what we see with, with Israel all the time. Its own laws are are themselves contrary to international law and uh, human rights obligations that Israel is obliged to comply with. I'll give you another example. In 2018, Israel passed the Nation State Law one of the things that the nation state law did is it established that only Jewish people have the right of self-determination in Israel. In a land which, you know, on Israel's own admission, 20% of the actual people within the state of Israel are not Jewish. So immediately we understand that Rights are being apportioned in Israel according to a Jewish supremacist framework. Now, these are not just my words, okay? These are the words of Beit Senen, which is Israel's leading human rights organization, which earlier this year published a report, hundreds of pages long, and this report was unequivocal. The title of it was, quote, a regime of Jewish supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, this is apartheid, okay? So I think, let's stop right here and, and, and make some additional commentary. It is certainly a fact that all states struggle with, you know, systemic racism and discrimination and you know, laws which are applied unequally. So we can have criminal laws which are being enforced in a much more aggressive way towards black folks, people of color, right, than they are against white people. The difference with Israel is that the racism which is prevalent in the society is not the result of the disproportionate application of what appear to be neutral laws on their face, rather, The system itself is designed very specifically and explicitly according to this Jewish supremacist framework. So what makes Israel different, and this is the same thing that made South Africa different under apartheid, is that discrimination, segregation, and racial supremacy are embedded into the system. You simply have more rights if you are a Jewish Israeli, and you simply have little to no rights if you are a Palestinian living within the same piece of land. And the only thing that determines how many rights you have is basically which group you belong to, right? That's what apartheid is. Apartheid is applying two different systems of law to different groups in the same space. And that's why Israel is an apartheid state. And that's why South Africa was an apartheid state. So we have to be very clear. When we're talking about apartheid, this isn't some sort of like an exaggeration or, you know, something you just put on like a poster when you go uh, protest, right, at a rally, just, you know, as like a cute little anecdote. This is a serious, serious reality that Palestinians all across historic Palestine are dealing with. And apartheid is a war crime. It's a crime against humanity, right? Apartheid, it's unacceptable in 2021 to to run an apartheid state. And this is what Palestinians are uh, working and struggling to dismantle. And what they have been struggling to dismantle For the last 73 years. And I mean, I can go on. Uh, The nation state law also determines that Jewish settlement is a national value. So this is part of Israel's policy to uh, essentially erase Palestinian civilization from the land of Palestine. Land is used to develop and expand existing Jewish communities and build new ones, while Palestinians continue to be dispossessed and pushed into smaller and smaller enclaves. Now, this is certainly true for the occupied West Bank, where essentially you have Palestinians living in what is akin to a banter and, you know, various little banter that are scattered throughout the West Bank, while the illegal settlements for Jewish people continue to grow and grow. But it's also true within the 48 territories, right? Palestinians live in segregated communities in 48 territories. Palestinians can't just live wherever they want. They can't just build wherever they want. They don't have the same access and and, and the same opportunities as their Jewish Israeli um, counterparts. Any Jew anywhere in the world can move to Israel tomorrow and immediately receive Israeli citizenship. And that comes, of course, with all of its associated benefits. However, I, for example, cannot move to Yaffa tomorrow, even though my great grandmother is from Yaffa and she was born there. I can't get citizenship because I'm Palestinian. And that's the only reason why I wouldn't be able to get citizenship. But if I was Jewish and I was from Long Island, you know, I could move to Yaffa tomorrow, having absolutely no connection to Yaffa whatsoever.
1: How does that really make you feel, Lara? Like literally, how does that make you feel like a stranger, somebody just because they're Jewish from Long Island or from Brooklyn, they have no ties, gets to go to Israel for free, all expenses paid and they get to live there and they get to receive citizenship. Yet your family actually historically have lived there and you are not able to go there. Honestly, we say that often, but how
0: does it really make you feel? How would it make anyone feel, right? The thing is, is that I think, Oftentimes in the discussion on you know the Palestinian struggle struggle for liberation, people forget that Palestinians are humans, right? They expect us to accept things which they themselves would never accept. Can you imagine going onto someone's property in America? and saying, I'm moving in, that you would get shot dead in two seconds. I mean, property rights for an American, especially if you're in the deep South, can you imagine? This is the kind of thing that nobody would tolerate, not even for a minute. And we've been living it for 73 years. So I always just tell people to stop for a minute and to imagine that Palestinians are human and that our reaction to being expelled from our land is only going to be a human reaction. Uh, How long would you uh, live under the same condition? And you know, subject to the same oppression without you yourself resisting, right? And and the truth is, is that most people wouldn't live very long without resisting and actually even taking up arms. That's just the reality of the matter, you know, because when you're talking about you're invading someone's house, people need to understand that Palestinians who were expelled during the nakba they literally left everything in their homes. And you know, the when the Zionists came through, either they completely razed the village altogether, they destroyed everything, they burned everything, and then you know, they planted a bunch of trees on top, or in many cases, they just moved in. You know, sometimes they didn't even change the furniture. So you have these people who are living in our houses, literally. And, you know, you can look up uh, all sorts of, you know, accounts and anecdotes of Palestinians who managed to go back to 48, you know, because they managed to get there because they managed at some point to get a passport either from the U.S. or Canada so now they can travel right they're no longer stateless they go back to visit their grandparents houses and they see the Jewish Israeli family that's living there that's only lived there you know since 1948 but before that the house used to belong to the Palestinian, and they were never paid for you know the fact that their house was literally stolen from them and that's the thing these are our lived realities like I try to explain when I speak about this issue I try to Paint for people a picture of what it actually means to be Palestinian. It means that more likely than not, you or your parents were born a stateless refugee. Stateless, not because you were, you came from the moon and you were dropped off on this planet. Because the state which was established on the piece of land where your entire lineage is from won't let you go back because you're not Jewish. That's the absurdity of being Palestinian. I think oftentimes like there's this unreasonable expectation that Palestinians should have some sort of like an inhuman response to this oppression. They should lay down and die and just you know accept Israel as a Jewish state. I absolutely do not accept Israel as a Jewish state. Why would I accept Israel as a Jewish state? It was it was set this is a state that was set up on land where the native inhabitants were not Jewish for the most part. And as to the Jews that lived in Palestine before the arrival of Zionism, they didn't want Zionism either because Palestinians were from a variety of different religions, mostly Muslim Muslim and Christian, but the minority religions which lived in Palestine pre-1948 coexisted perfectly fine with the Muslims and Christians. There was no exclusive claim to the land of Palestine. That 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 notion that anybody would have an exclusive claim to the land of Palestine is completely ahistorical. It doesn't come from anywhere because Palestine was never like that. You know very well the history of Palestine. We have been home to so many different civilizations, everything from the Romans to the Greeks, to the to the, to the Persians, to the Byzantines, to the Mamluks, to the Ottomans, and, and so many more that I haven't even, you know, named, right? And there was no, there was never any notion of exclusivity in any of this. But with the arrival of Zionism, we have, for the first time, this notion that, oh, no, 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 it's only going to be for a certain group of people only. And those people are going to be coming from everywhere, all over the world. And they're going to be coming to settle this land. And this is a classic case of settler colonialism. What the Zionist project is doing in Palestine, it's not something new. They didn't invent it. Same thing happened in the United States. The same thing happened in Canada. The same thing happened in Australia. And in fact, what we see is that these early Zionists, like Herzl, like Jabotinsky, like all these guys, they were actually inspired by the uh, European settlers in the Americas themselves, right? So they they drew a lot from these notions of manifest destiny and, you know, being sent by God to settle the land and expelling the savage native and all of these sorts of things. And this scholarship has been really um, deeply developed, especially by People like Professor Steve Salida. we did an episode with
1: him on our podcast, and I highly recommend it for people who are interested in exploring further that connection. It's really important that we define apartheid. But I absolutely loved how you covered all these laws and you showed how discriminatory Israel is towards Palestinians, even living within the 48. But just even the existence of Palestinians just proves, just proves how this is a settler colonialist movement, and that basically the state was based on ethnic cleansing. That Israel would not exist if ethnic cleansing did not happen. It's the only apartheid state happening right now in this world. Is is Israel's apartheid? You know, we celebrated the fact that the ceasefire happened, and our hearts just felt a little bit more settled because it was was really, really hard and devastating to see Gaza being bombed the way that it was. And you know, another thing is, even just me as a Palestinian, it's just so interesting how us Palestinians are not afforded trigger warnings, that we are just able to consume all these images. You yourself seen your family's building just being demolished. How did that make you feel? And it's just that fact of the matter that we are not afforded a trigger warning, that the world is just looking at us like as if like, oh, this is normal. They normalized the destruction of our people, like the world normalized the destruction and the non-existence and extinction, I mean, of our people. And that is, it's honestly really heartbreaking. It was really heartbreaking to even listening to you right now talking about how it feels to not be able to go back to your homeland people fail to realize that israel occupies all of palestine
0: my brother-in-law's family you're referring to the to the image of the cairo residential tower where my brother-in-law's family lives and where where they have um, three apartments in that building because a bunch of them live there you know my uncle my aunt and my brother-in-law's brother, and, you know, so there's quite a bit of the family that live in this building. They actually got a phone call. They were one of the lucky ones, you know, because Israel always says you're the most moral army in the world. We give you a phone call before we destroy your property, before we demolish entirely your, your home. And it's such an absurd premise to begin with, right? Because we don't even question why the Palestinian home should be destroyed to begin with, right? Why are we even doing this to begin with, much less you know, talking about, oh, it's so nice of you to give us five minutes to run out of the the building. That's exactly what happened with my, my aunt and uncle. I mean, they ran out by the skin of their teeth, no hijab, no shoes on, you know, they were the last ones out of the building before the The airstrike hit, and the airstrike hit um, their neighbors underneath them. And So, you know, the hours went by, and the building started to be engulfed in flames. And the flames reached my aunt and uncle's flat. And, uh, you know, it's damaged, but they are still alive. So I think, relatively speaking, when you speak about how they're doing if we compare it to some sort of an American standard of living, right? It's a disaster. But if we compare it to what's happening in Gaza and the fact that almost now, I mean, I've seen figures of 60,000, but also up to 100,000 people which were made refugees once again in this latest onslaught of colonial violence and these latest attacks by Israel. So can you imagine 100,000 people of, of them, are my aunt and uncle, and you know, our other family members? You know, they're doing relatively fine, right? Because they, they're still alive. You know, we lost one uh relative that's not related to my brother in law's family, that's from my own family, who was a farmer who was, who was farming his field. He was farming his field when he was hit by a, an airstrike in central Gaza. I mean, this is what we deal with, and, but I still consider that my family is very blessed, right? Because in the same military onslaughts, Israel took out 22 members of one single family, Israel completely erased over a dozen families from the civil register in in Gaza. These families no longer exist because of the number of people that were killed. They were the last members of the family. So these families no longer exist in Gaza. So we are talking about a genocide. The fact of the matter is, is this genocide has been ongoing since 1947, roughly. So if you're Palestinian in Gaza, well, genocide looks like F-16s that are going to pummel your your home and your your city every few years in a policy which the israeli army refers to as mowing the lawn you know if you're a palestinian in the west bank it means living in in a space that is subject to total martial law with a, with a, with a constant military presence i mean literally i was filming my podcast yesterday we were supposed to have my dear friend iad bornaz from the village of balayn appear as a guest on my podcast, and he had to decline because his two sons, who I know and who I played with when I was in Bil'in 10 years ago, were arbitrarily arrested by Israel. He doesn't know why. They were kidnapped. They were taken. He hasn't heard anything from them for the last week. Yad and his wife have not been able to sleep. The Zionists came in, the occupation army destroyed everything in their house, turned everything upside down, pulled out all the drawers, smashed every TV screen, smashed every computer, every electronic device. He said, "Larry, I can't get on the Zoom. I've got nothing. I'm I'm calling you from a neighbor right now and I I just can't focus. My sons are gone. I don't know what to do. I have to try to figure out where they are and how to get them out. And Israel always does this. They go into the West Bank in these military raids at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. They pick up our youth. They'll hold them. They'll torture them. They'll get them to sign some confession in Hebrew that they don't understand without the presence of a lawyer, without their parents, in total violation of any of the due process safeguards that you would expect in a democratic society. And then they charge their parents like however many thousands of U.S. dollars to release them. Right. And, and so this is a money making system also. And this is this is a situation where Palestinians have to have some sort of a budget, you know, in, in their in their life savings to to deal with the financial consequences of colonial violence. My family's is trying to figure out how to replace three apartments. My friend Ed Bernard is trying to figure out how to raise money right now so that he can get his kids out of, you know, the occupier's military prison. For which again, we don't know. We don't know why they were taken to begin with, right? And these are kids. These are these are minors. They're 16, 17 years old. And this is not a unique situation to my friend or to my family, but we are mere examples of how all Palestinians are living. Yeah, it's um, it's ongoing. It's an ongoing process of ethnic cleansing that is being carried out by a settler colony, which also has um, reinforced this uh, system of oppression through the creation of an apartheid system of governance. So all of these, you know, systems of oppression are operating at the same time. and They're all interconnected and woven into one another. And so, yeah, those are the words that we need to be using. We need to be speaking about ethnic cleansing. We need to be speaking about settler colonialism. We need to be speaking about genocide. We need to be speaking about apartheid. These are the words that reflect the reality of what it's like to live as a Palestinian. And again, they're not my words only. They're the same words that Human Rights Watch is using. They're the same words that Beit Salem is using. They're the same words that people, uh, the Palestinians have been using, right, for decades. But now, finally, the international community is starting to Wake up to this reality because it's so brazen. It's been decades now and Israel has uh, been lying to the world. But we now live in an age of social media, of mass, mass, mass information that anybody can go out there and publish. You know, I was watching these lives on Instagram of Gaza. I was watching lives of shelling. I watched a medicine factory get shelled in Gaza. I watched you know, the shelling of my brother-in-law's building. I watched it. I, I I have a clip of it. It's on my page, you know what I mean? It becomes much more difficult to control the narrative when you're not controlling the information that is being disseminated. Israel is losing the legitimacy war, and it has been losing the legitimacy war, but right now what we're seeing in the aftermath um, of this latest, you know, onslaught of colonial violence and its correlated Palestinian uprising is that more and more Israel is basically losing the ability to control the narrative as it did before because Palestinians are getting out there and they're showing the world their experiences. They're showing the world unedited, uninterrupted footage of what it's like to live in occupied East Jerusalem, what it's like to be in a Upsa mosque and get hit with you know, stun grenades and tear gas and to be beaten, you know, in when you're holding a peaceful protest where you're singing and dancing and flying kites. The Palestinian boy yesterday who had a semi-automatic rifle pointed at his head because he was arrested for holding a Palestinian flag. He must have been seven years old, maybe six. I don't know. You know, these pictures are out there. All you have to do is Google Israeli soldier arresting Palestinian child and click through the Google search and all you'll see is like, dozens of RoboCops, like smothering a child who's usually blindfolded. And you're just like, why, why are we supporting this? Why are we giving this state money? You know, it just looks wrong. You know what I mean? And you can't, there's only so many ways that you could spin it.
1: You know what, what really scares me though is just recently Netanyahu was saying how he wanted to cut off social media in Gaza. So imagine that, imagine the next onslaught where we're unable to see what, what is actually happening. I think that's something that I really fear because right now you cannot ignore the truth when it comes in the form of a picture live, right handed right over to you in your hands where you're seeing, yes, a seven-year-old boy having a rifle to his face. Imagine your child dealing with that. And somebody said there's no such thing as PTSD for Palestinians. It's just traumatic stress disorder because like that there is no post. This is the life that they were born into, unfortunately. These are the consequences you have to face because you're simply Palestinian and nothing else. For no other reason that you have to face the ethnic cleansing of your people. And you know, something that I've just, I feel like everybody right now is battling um, on social media is the fact that they are trying to redefine what Zionism is. They're trying to redefine what anti-Semitic is. They're trying to redefine all these terms for us and it's, it's not okay. And that's the thing. I always see this every time they're losing, they're redefining. And when they're redefining, finding it's basically just making us seem like we are anti-semitic and I'm glad that you brought up the point that yes we should say that this is a genocide how else would you describe the ethnic cleansing of these people just for simply being who they are for being Palestinian and for living on their land and in their homes what else would you call that other than an apartheid state we need to really stand our ground when we are faced with these anti-semitic claims and to understand that look, this is exactly what is happening we have the proof and it does come in pictures oftentimes I also wonder like in school why were we never taught about the Nakba we were flooded and drowned with information about the Holocaust and every other war out there, but there's absolutely no mention of the Nakba, And I, I think that's something that's very, it's very strategic in a way because it, it brings me back to this point where the cameras and the stories start at the point of when Israel is quote unquote defending themselves. It never starts at that actual point. How did Israel come into existence? Because of the Nakba? Even just recently, any stories that you're hearing about certain anti-Semitic things happening, like people being attacked for being Jewish. But why aren't we starting it at the very beginning of why were these protesters being agitated? or just even recently what's going on in Sheikh Jarrah. Why is it that they're making it seem like this is a real estate issue when it's not? Who are the people of Sheikh Jarrah? Who are the residents? Why do they live in Sheikh Jarrah in the first place? Can we start from that point? I really want to talk about just even there was polls going around how the young Jewish residents of quote unquote Israel are becoming more and more radical than their own parents and their own grandparents. And that's something that honestly really scares me. And it also brings me to the point of now Israel has a new prime minister. Do you mind talking a little bit about him? And you know, like the U.S. It doesn't matter which president we're swapping them for. They're all horrible in a way. So if we can talk about the prime minister, if you can kind of introduce us to, I guess, the next monster of Israel, that, that would be great.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, the Times of Israel reported in 2019 that young Israeli Jews identify as right-wing at much higher levels than their parents, making Israel a unique case in the world, because normally younger generations worldwide have more progressive views than the generations that come before them. But this is not the case with Israel. And we're, of course, actually seeing this play out with the Israeli government. Just yesterday, the prime minister who was confirmed as a replacement to Netanyahu, Naftali Bennett, is even more right-wing and racist and genocidal than Netanyahu, if you can even imagine that. Just Google some of the things that he said about Palestinians. That could be the subject of its own podcast episode. But He was most famously quoted as saying, I've already killed a lot of Arabs in my life, and there's absolutely no problem. With that. Okay, This guy spent time as a minister of defense. He absolutely does not support the uh establishment of a Palestinian state it sees it all as Israel uh, he's a far right ultra-nationalist opposing any sort of self-determination for Palestinians much less rights uh, you know of any kind the genocidal remarks are everywhere he said oh if we capture terrorists we just need to kill them you know things like that he refers to Palestinians as terrorists right he's also you know famously been quoted as rejecting the concept of the occupation at all. He doesn't believe that there's any occupation. Again, this is Total delusion because it, but it's completely contrary to international law. He supports, you know, total Israeli control over, um, East Jerusalem, you know, just like they did in West Jerusalem, which was previously Palestinian until they ethnically cleansed it. People forget that. But, uh, also, you know, he's one of those guys that wants to see the destruction of Al-Aqsa Mosque and its replacement with a Jewish temple. This is bad news. The fact that this guy is here is real, real bad news. But, You know, sometimes it has to get worse before it gets better. And I think if anything, uh, as or his emergence as prime minister of Israel now, I think is only going to accelerate what we are already seeing, which is 600 musicians signed a letter calling for a boycott of Israel. You know, there was a time when only Roger Waters of Pink Floyd was out there saying, hey guys, boycott Israel, please listen, it's an apartheid state. Now we have 600 musicians. In a separate letter, 1,000 Canadian artists also reaffirmed their support for Palestinian liberation. We are seeing... Uh, an acceleration of supporters for BDS because people are starting to understand that Israel is a racist endeavor. And with the support of United States funding, carrying out one of the greatest injustices in this world, you know, it's the longest standing ethnic cleansing project, you know, of the 20th and 21st century, and it's still ongoing. But you reminded me of something when you said, you know, why did we learn about the Nakba?" And I thought it would be interesting to recall that Israel ha- has actually passed what is known as the nekba law, which basically authorizes the finance minister to reduce state funding or support to any institution that holds an activity that rejects the existence of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, quote unquote, or commemorates Israel's Independence Day as the Nakba. right? So I- Israel's basically outlawing commemoration of the Nakba within Israel itself, which again, for the 20% of the Palestinians who live there and have lived there and were there before Israel, what is that saying to them? Keeping in mind that those Palestinians, there's almost 100% chance that they themselves had family members who were expelled during Nakba, and they're not allowed to speak about their own experience. We are not allowed as Palestinians to just say, this is what happened to me. I mean, when I tell my story, I have Zionists saying, oh, you're lying. This didn't happen to you. You say you're from Gaza. You've never been there. I'm like, that's exactly my point.
1: Like, what do they understand about
0: that? (laughs) That's exactly my point. Because my grandparents were never allowed to go back to Gaza. Because Israel has basically implemented a variety of different policies to reduce the Palestinian population in Palestine, right? So in some cases, it looked like total, you know, brute force of driving people out with guns and bombs, raping women, killing men. Yeah, okay, that was part of it. But there was also other parts, right, where any Palestinians who were outside Palestine were just prevented from coming back, were not allowed to come back. So then they found themselves stateless refugees in countries all around the world. And then they had to figure out a way how to get a passport elsewhere. And for the Palestinians who became stateless refugees, either because they were prevented from coming back or because they were expelled and prevented from coming back. In the Arab world, most of them still don't have passports until today, right? It's only us, like the very lucky ones who somehow managed to find a passport, whether in the U.S. or the EU or Australia or wherever it may be, which incidentally, the irony is not lost because these are all settler colonies who also require the arrival of immigrants to further their own expansionist policies which are genocidal in nature and support the ethnic cleansing of native people here in the u.s in canada right so it's you know it's 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 a very messed up situation there's you know we're just scratching the surface of the types of absurd scenarios that palestinians find themselves in but also palestinian citizens of israel find themselves in and i encourage anyone to peruse the base report to understand how israel operates as an apartheid state everywhere everywhere right within the 48 territories in the west bank in Gaza, in occupied East Jerusalem, and don't take my word for it. Take a look at what the evidence itself shows. Uh, this information is available everywhere if you want to know, but you have to have the desire to want to know. I mean, I, I, like I said, i barely scratched the surface. This is, I mean, there's there's so, so, so much more. Take a look, for example, the fact that Palestinians who live in 48, if, what happens if they marry Palestinians from the West Bank or Gaza? Do they get to move there? Do they get to be reunited? No. Israel has done everything in its power for decades to fragment and physically separate Palestinians from one another. So, if you're a Palestinian living in 48, you can't go live in the West Bank. If you're in the West Bank, you can't go live in if you're in Gaza, you can't go to Jerusalem. Like Gaza to Jerusalem is one hour in a car, but that trip is impossible to make. Do you understand? It's an impossible trip to make. You can't, you can't do it. It doesn't exist. Meanwhile, my grandfather was telling me stories about how his father would take the train from Gaza to Damascus to go to work. That train doesn't exist today. Much less take getting in a car and driving from Gaza to Jerusalem. Are you kidding? You'd be shot dead before you could even, you know. Exit Gaza, right? By by an Israeli sniper. And that's why Gaza is you know the world's largest open air prison because people are being caged. And again, who are the people that live in Gaza? The majority of them are refugees. 80% of the people who live in Gaza today are refugees from the creation of the state of Israel. They were expelled from their cities to the north, to the east, that the Zionists claimed for themselves and turned into Israel. Meanwhile, we're refugees. We're in Gaza. We're refugees in the West Bank. We're refugees all over the Arab world. We're internally displaced refugees in 48. Not even even the people who are still in 48 today. Many of them don't even live in the cities that their families were from pre-Nekvah. Right. So just look at the facts like Palestinians are everywhere, but they're separated from one another. Why? Because Israel doesn't let us see one another, get to know one another. The fact that I've developed relationships with people in Gaza, with people in East Jerusalem, with people on 48 is merely is merely thanks to social media. I I made virtual friends that I simply would never be physically allowed to meet because Israel would never let us meet. That is an injustice. Like that is, that's a reality. Like this is not an opinion. I physically would never be able to go with my friend, Joe who works at Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza and go to East Jerusalem and have lunch with my friend Saleh, who's a journalist and sit around a table together. It could never happen because Israel would never allow us to. So why is a foreign entity making all these decisions about what a Palestinian can or can't do with their life? That's the situation. Palestinians' lives are being completely controlled by an entity which does not represent them because they don't vote for them. We don't vote for any of these people, and yet they can take any and all decisions that impact our lives from whether or not we're allowed to move, everything relating to freedom of movement, what it's like for us to, to, to go to work, to go to school, whether we'll be able to you know, move abroad and come back, and, and you know, or, if, or whether Israel will revoke our residency, whether or not we even have the right to see another birthday or whether we'll simply turn into dust, like, you know, the 260 plus Palestinians who in the last month were massacred in Gaza because of the F-16s. That's what Israel does. It decides everything about our lives. We don't get to decide anything. And that's not a democracy, no matter how many times you say it is, right? And look, I can I can give you plenty of examples about, about people's lived experiences, but the fact of the matter is, is that the scholarship also matches the people's lived experiences. This is not... This is not just a situation where people just have, well, it's just my opinion and it's just my experience. No, the scholarship is also on our side. Ilan Papi's Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine lays out very clearly, lays out very clearly that Palestinians were expelled and this is an Israeli historian. This information is out there, but you have to want to read it and you have to want to put aside any sort of inclination About creating an exclusive sort of claim to the land of Palestine based on some notion which probably isn't true about who was in this land 2,000 years ago. Look, if you don't have anyone that you personally know that was in Palestine, then you're not from Palestine. But that's okay, you don't have to be from Palestine to live in Palestine. You can come as an immigrant, you can come as a refugee. Palestine always accepted immigrants and refugees, but what you can't do is expel the native population. We draw the line at ethnic cleansing and I think that's a reasonable place to draw the line. Listen to what I'm saying, is it radical? Is it radical that we say we should be able to live where our ancestors are from, where my grandma is from, where my great grandma is from, where my great great grandma is from, going all the way back to the Greeks? Is that a radical thing? where else am I supposed to go? That's where we're from.
1: And that's what Nuran said um, in a previous episode. She's like, we're not our colonizers. We're not like them. We don't have a colonized mind, meaning that we do accept everyone from any background to come and live in Palestine, but just don't get rid of us. Don't get rid of, like you said, the native population. And that's the thing when you say from the river to the sea, you see these Jewish Israelis or Zionists basically say, oh, you're trying to er erase Jews from Palestine. And that's not what we're saying whatsoever. Just because that's what you're doing does not mean that we will be guilty of your crimes that you've committed against us. We will not return the favor in that sense. And that is what angers me the most is how they want to redefine their terms, but they're also redefining what it means to us when we say from the river to the sea.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely 100% right. Look, if you want to know more about how the Zionists are constantly moving the goalposts to try to change definitions in order to justify ethnic cleansing, I encourage everybody to listen to the episode that we did of the Palestine Pod with the journalist Nora Barrows Friedman. We went into this extensively. There are really official efforts being made at changing the definition of anti-Semitism in order to suppress and kill any form of critique of Israel and efforts also to conflate Zionism and Judaism. You know, it's really important for people to know that anti-Zionist Jews exist, there's a lot of them, And Israel will constantly tell you that they're not Jewish, that they're self-hating Jews. Israel though is born out of the Zionist ideology, which is just over 100 years old. Meanwhile, Judaism is a religion that has existed for over 3,000 years. But Israel wants you to believe that if you're not a Zionist and you don't support this ideology which has existed only for 100 some years, that you can't be a Jew, right? But meanwhile, Jewish people are saying, wait a minute, we actually know our religion and we're scholars and we're rabbis and we, we know what our religion is and it doesn't have anything to do with ethnic cleansing and genocide and apartheid. So seems kind of anti-Semitic to make the claim that Israel represents Judaism and that all of Israel's crimes can then be imputed onto this beautiful religion, right? So it's really important for us to understand these attempts to rewrite and redefine the terms are all techniques to suppress this very conversation that we are even having right now and people need to understand that anytime Israel will say oh Palestinians just want to wipe Israel off the map it's projecting they already did it to us they are self-projecting what they already did to us just look at a map of the region pre-1948, it was all Palestine. There was no Israel, West Bank, Gaza. It was just Palestine. They already wiped us off the map. They already expelled the majority of our native population in 1948 and made us stateless refugees. They already did it. They're still expelling us today. They're still caging us today. They already did it. So when they try to come at us with accusations of future imagined ethnic cleansing, just know that it comes from a place where they know very well what they did. And the thing is, is that we don't think like that. We just, for us, liberation means that I'd be able to take a car and drive from Jaffa to Gaza and then go have lunch with my friend in Jerusalem. That's what liberation means to me. It means that I can move freely in my land. It means that I can go to school and study whatever I want. It means that I can raise a family and have them be safe living in that land. That's what liberation means to me. It means that I can make art. It means that I have time to develop my my hobbies and the things that I love in this life and the things that I'm passionate about and that I can contribute to my my culture, that that I can write poetry, that I can make music. That's what liberation means to me and that's what liberation means to all Palestinians who love life and who have constantly shown in the face of the most extreme oppression their capacity to enjoy and live and love life. They are an example. Palestinians are an example for all oppressed and colonized people in the way that they continue to live amidst this very, very deep oppression. And they do so with dignity. And, and that gives me an immense amount of drive to continue the work that I'm doing, right? Because if, if they're doing this there, and I'm talking to my friend, Salat, and I'm saying, Salat, are you tired? You must be so tired. I was like, I I, I haven't slept in a week. I'm so tired. He's like, what are you talking about? He's in East Jerusalem. I'm not tired at all. We have to keep going. Like, they have this energizer buddy energy where, where they just keep going because they know that living liberated is something that you can't put a price on. 1.5 million people in Algeria lost their lives trying to free themselves from the shackles of French colonialism. Palestinians are showing that they are going to free themselves from, from Zionist colonialism. And that, you know, it doesn't matter if you if you wipe out an entire family because another one will come and replace it and will fight for liberation. And liberation, again, it's about living life fully. It has nothing to do with genocide or ethnic cleansing. That's what they did to us, but we're not like them.
1: Exactly. And, you know, another discriminatory way that they can also identify if you're Arab, Palestinian, not um, Israeli, Jewish is the mere license plates and how like they're different colors or even like our passports and all that stuff. Liberation means that we can all just be united under one and not have to indicate who we are, but what we're driving and what we're carrying. And, and that's in itself is just so discriminatory and it's it's really unfortunate. I want to just, I guess, end it with how complicit U.S. is in this. And I really want to just drive this home because I, I feel like a lot of us, I don't want to say us, like Palestinians like us Palestinians living in the diaspora we know what how the US is complicit we know how unfortunately we can also be complicit in the fact that we are living in the US and we are paying our taxes the t- same taxes that go and fund the apartheid in in Palestine unfortunately but i want to talk about how Is it possible for the U.S. and for Israel to ever break ties? Is it possible for these two that have the most toxic relationship to be able to not have unconditional support for one another? Because when you really look at it, I've never seen like, please name me a relationship that is built on such unconditional love in the way that Israel and U.S. are. It's just so unfortunate that no matter what Israel does, the U.S. will still stand beside them. And and that's something that I feel like we really need to focus on because we have to dismantle this apartheid in every which way possible, even here in the U.S. We have to do it and we have to be able to be the echo of our people. And I feel like there's a lot that we can do as Palestinians living in the diaspora, living here in, in the U.S. What are your thoughts on the relationship of the U.S. and Israel? And can we ever, ever witness a day where the U.S. decides to not support Israel, even though, even though we've seen Biden decades ago basically say, even if Israel didn't exist, we would have created an Israel?
0: Yeah, I don't even know what that means, to be honest. It's one of his weirder Zionist quotes. Look, I mean, Can, can the relationship between Israel and the United States change? Of course it can, but it's, it's not going to happen overnight. And we're going to have to dismantle the structures and the relationships that exist within our own society that push this pro-Zionist Narrative and position and policy. I think if we look back at the example of apartheid South Africa, it got to the point where apartheid South Africa essentially became black, you know, blacklisted by everyone. I mean, they weren't even in the Olympics; they were prevented from participating in any sort of international arena or space, right? And I think if we if we look at that example, one thing that we can understand is perhaps. The day will come when the political cost of supporting Israel is going to be greater than the benefits that the U.S. reaps from this relationship. And let's be honest, Israel is essentially, you know, a military outpost of the United States in the middle east it's part of the u.s sort of imperial policy to dominate and maintain you know it's hegemony in the world and there's a great deal of scholarship that has been written about this and why the u.s supports israel and what does it get out of this relationship a lot of it comes from jewish you know professors and policy people and you know people uh, in this arena and i'm not going to reinvent the wheel and, and you know i just defer to people like them but like John Mersheimer, Steve Waltz, who wrote the Israel Lobby many years ago, and they talk about the Israel Lobby's role in perpetuating this relationship. And, and, you know, of course, there are others, right? So I think it has to get to the point where it becomes more difficult to excuse Israel than it does to just simply push everything under the rug and, you know, continue business as usual. And I think that's going to be the turning point. That being said, I think what we're going to see now, as I mentioned, massive, massive, massive shift uh, and acceleration in in support for BDS. And that's going to include support for BDS from U.S. politicians, including within the Democratic Party. The rift between the, the Democratic Party base, sort of, you know, these old timers is going to grow bigger and bigger. And that, you know, the Israel relationship is going to become a more polarizing question, you know, as we've seen. This sort of staunch support for Israel right now really only exists amongst Republicans and, you know, these old-timer Democrats. But I think what we're also going to see is that it's going to become more and more of a Republican issue. Um, you know, not to say that the Democrats are going to free Palestine. I certainly don't think that they're going to. And there's, I have plenty of reasons, <laughs> and that could be its own podcast. I'm just podcast. giving
1: you podcast ideas here, Lotta. I can't wait to tune no, in. actually,
0: we did an episode on that. Like, why... Why life for Palestinians isn't different under a democratic, you know, presidency. I mean, Obama is the one who signed $38 billion aid package, which is the largest aid package in history for Israel, the $3.8 billion every year for 10 years, that was Obama, you know, the settlements grew exponentially more than they had ever grown under Obama than they did, you know, under Bush or, you know, Trump. Right?
1: And not only is it that it doesn't change between Democrats and Republicans, it's just the fact that even just them saying Israel defends itself, they've been saying this for decades, like that's the U.S. stance, like they have not changed their stance whatsoever, even just that simple line that they have not changed. And that's something that we have to really look into.
0: Yeah. And it's also false, right? I mean, I, I'm an international lawyer. It's absolutely false. Israel does not have a right to defend itself against a population that it cages, that it has made refugees, that it has expelled from their homes in 48 territories and now pummels with advanced military weapons. Israel has no right to defend itself against those people. Israel is an occupying power and under international law, the law that applies in this framework, it's Palestinians who as an occupied people have the right to resist the uh, hostile takeover of, of their territory and the occupation of their territories, Palestinian land that's being occupied here. It's not the other way around. So people need to understand that. And actually, when we hear politicians just sort of reiterate, Israel has a right to defend itself, you know, without even thinking. It's just this talking point that d- gets regurgitated. It's simply false. I mean, the actual position of international law is exactly the opposite. And there's plenty of scholarship to support this. It, it, it's just crazy because imagine being... You know, you know, being a dentist, for example, and having the official position of the U.S. government be, well, the best thing for you to do to support healthy teeth would be to eat a bunch of sugar and to not brush your teeth. And you're a dentist and you're like, no, no, but that's actually false. It's the opposite. And that's exactly what it's like to be an international lawyer and listen to the U.S. government say Israel has rights to defend itself. It's simply false. Israel does not have a right to defend itself. It's a military occupier. And the only solution to military occupation is immediate withdrawal. And yet we have been living under this never-ending, you know, 50-plus year-long military occupation, which defies all the rules of uh, international law. Occupation is supposed to be is supposed to be a temporary state. It's clearly not temporary. And this is why groups like Beit Zedin and Human Rights Watch have concluded that Israel is guilty of the crime of uh, you know, apartheid and persecution and other war crimes, because... Part of it is that the military occupation became permanent. And so we can consider that these lands have been annexed into Israel and are now controlled by Israel. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that Palestinians are living under these lands, under the control of a government that they did not elect, that does not represent them, and that treats them differently from the Jewish people that live on the same land.
1: Thank you for everything, Laura. That was so informative. And I feel like I've always said this, like even as a Palestinian, I'm always continuously learning about the plight of the Palestinian people and what we can do moving forward. I think right now we really need to focus on the movement and to keep continuously pushing the needle. And and honestly, just at this point, I think that we are seeing a shift in the narrative. At this point, we are seeing more people talking about Palestine. This is a turning point because this is probably one of the few moments that I finally feel hopeful that we are getting closer to a free and liberated Palestine. And I again, I can't believe we have to say this disclaimer. It does not mean that we're kicking anybody out that is not Palestinian, that is not a Palestinian Arab or a Muslim or Christian. You know what I mean? It's open for all. All we're just asking is just the freedom of movement, the freedom to be who we are, the freedom to exist, the freedom of the right of return. And I think that's the most important thing. And some people say, well, what are we going to do with all these refugees returning? There's no room. Well, no, there is. There's room. There's
0: room. This stuff has been studied. This stuff has been studied. It, 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 that's a lie. The scholarship completely does not agree with that
1: position. I remember I asked elon Pepe about that because I, I attended one of his uh, talks. I'm like, what do I say to people like this that say that there is no room for these people? He's like, he's like, if there's room for them to build illegal settlements, he's like, there is room for these people to come back and, and live back on their land. He's like, that is just something that, again, it's part of their propaganda and whatnot. But again, I really, really want to thank you, Laura. I can't stress enough you guys to please listen to Laura's podcast. It's specifically focused. Focused on Palestine and the issues within Palestine and what's going on, how we can as a movement um, strengthen ourselves and to be more inclusive, diversify our voices and to have more people, you know, join us in, in liberating Palestine. If you have any final notes, Laura, other than that, I really, really, really want to thank you. You've really kept us up to date with so much information and the truth is out there. If you guys want the truth, just follow the cousin girl on Instagram. You'll be blown away at all the facts that she provides, mashallah.
0: Yeah, I would just uh, my my last call is to support BDS. Palestinians put out a call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions in 2005 after the International Court of Justice rendered an opinion uh, declaring that the apartheid wall that Israel built on Palestinian land was illegal. In 2021, this wall has yet to be dismantled, and so Palestinians were seeing that regardless of the avenues that they chose for resistance, whether it be the international courts, diplomacy, you know, armed resistance protest, whatever it may be, failed peace process, they weren't getting any closer to liberation. And so they were inspired by the example that was set for us in apartheid South Africa and the boycott movement, which helped dismantle the apartheid regime there and Palestinians have put this call out since 2005 and the movement is growing. So support the boycott of Israeli products and products which are uh, actively participating in the oppression of Palestinians. Go online and look up what are the products and companies to boycott and get your friends in on the action as well, because everybody has something to do to support the liberation of Palestinians. And when Palestinians are free, everybody gets free because all of our liberation is interlinked and all of our oppression is interlinked. And so that's exactly why, you know, you have Black Lives Matter, all other oppressed, colonized people supporting Palestinians and Palestinians supporting them, you know, historically, but also until today. And again, if you're interested in that, we did a podcast episode on that. Episode two, uh, all our liberation is linked. But yeah, support BDS. Those are my closing remarks. And make sure you, uh, you know. Find out where the local BDS chapter is in your neighborhood, in your city, and find out what the campaigns are and find out you know, what it is that you should be boycotting so that you can also be a part of the liberation of Palestine. And uh, I would especially emphasize this to people that are in the United States because you might think that this issue is far away. It's in the Middle East. It's just a violent place. It's, well, the reality is it's not. And Reality is, is that we are actively funding this oppression more than we fund anything else. And those three point eight billion dollars that we give to Israel every year could be used to fund desperately needed benefits in the United States, education, healthcare, housing, whatever it may be, ending mass incarceration, finding alternatives. I mean, these are all these, these issues are all related. So if for no other reason than you want to see an improvement to your reality as an American living in the United States, support Palestinian liberation for that, because we are spending an insane amount of money to fund the oppression and the subjugation of the Palestinian people. And what are we getting out of it, right? You're not
1: getting anything. I want to know, even like during the pandemic, we shut down in Chicago. I believe they're in the process of shutting down Mercy Hospital in the middle of a pandemic like because they didn't have any funding. But yet we have enough funding to fund an ethnic cleansing happening in Palestine. And you want to tell me that that issue is far away. It's not. It's it's very close to home. If we can close down hospitals because we think that it's more important to fund the genocide of Palestinians, then we definitely have to come together and challenge the U.S., challenge the government in regards to where our money is going. And it's... it's honestly very, very unfortunate. I really want to thank you for bringing up BDS because it's super important that you can't cancel everything overnight. But look at that list. There's so much there's so much that we can honestly, there's a lot of alternatives to those brands that we are telling you to boycott. And then obviously, sh- sanctions are super important. I'm pretty sure that you probably already have an episode about this lot or you're going to have an episode about sanctions and how yeah. important they are. This was very informative. I really hope people benefited from this conversation. I really hope people share this conversation, but as well as listen and tune into the Palestine pod and share your conversations because you bring on such incredible guests and I'm very honored to even have you on the podcast I'm so glad that we finally crossed paths and Inshallah, we can continue this fight yes thank you so much Danielle. thank you very much
0: and we'll see you soon